Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books Network. I am Vladislav Lilic, doctoral candidate in modern European history at Vanderbilt University. In today's episode, I am privileged to host Dr. Rose Parfit, senior lecturer in law at the University of Kent. Dr. Parfit has published widely in the fields of international law, legal history, critical theory, and history of art. Her research is focused on the development of new techniques aimed at uncovering, making sense of, and challenging international law's agency in the creation and preservation of a world in which wealth, power, and pleasure are distributed more and more unequally. In what follows, we will discuss her first monograph, The Process of International Legal Reproduction, Inequality, Historiography, Resistance, published by Cambridge University Press in 2019. Centered on a radical re-examination of the canonical well-known story of fascist Italy's invasion of Ethiopia, the book exposes the conditional nature of the process through which international law creates and disciplines new states and their subjects. The result is a powerful critique of international law's role in establishing and perpetuating inequalities of power, accompanied by a call to attend more closely to the strategies of resistance that are generated in that process. Dr. Parfit, thank you for joining New Books Network and for taking the time to talk to me about your work. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. As is customary on the channel, I will start us off by asking how your previous intellectual and research trajectories had led you to write the process of international legal reproduction? Right. Well, that's um, that's a good question. There's a, I guess there's a short answer to that and then there's a slightly longer answer. The short answer is that it, it sort of came, it's, it's sort of the first half of a, a bigger project um, that I've been working on for a long time to do with the relationship between fascism and international law. So, um, so that I've published... Um, you know, a few articles on that, you know, essentially the argument that, you know, we like to think about international law as the antidote to fascism, but I would suggest that actually the two are mutually bound up together in a slightly disturbing way. So it, it, it kind of, uh, in order to write that, I realised that I needed to explore uh, the idea of the state uh, and the community that's so central to fascism, basically, uh, in a lot more detail in terms of its international legal history before I could write that. So it's, that's the kind of short answer. But the longer answer is, I suppose, the trajectory is pretty much as long as I am old, you could say, in the sense that it will probably explain a lot about the book if you know that I am the child of a, an artist, a painter on the one hand and an archaeologist on the other. So I spent a massive chunk of my childhood uh, in a very tiny village in northern Greece, essentially on a on various well on a dig in particular there, but various others as well. And so you know, I'm sure that 
subliminally that has a, quite a lot to do with the, the emphasis on materiality in the book, on the, on the sense of history as a really material thing, as a kind of thing that you can bump up against. And also, it's I mean, it's relatively eclectic in terms of um, method or methodology. And so, you know, there's it's 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 written not really as a book, but I kind of tried to build it instead as a box, as a shadow box. My long-suffering publishers <laughs> put up with it um, at CUP, so I have them to thank for that. But they they that they allow me to do that. So, but it just didn't. I was trying to get away from linearity, which is not easy with a book. So. In my family, it's completely normal to be talking at the same moment about, like, you know, cubism and where a particular kind of marble came from that was used to build such and such a, you know, building. And, you know, that kind of, like, interdisciplinarity was and is kind of completely normal in my household. So, um, you know, so that kind of thing is really important. But in terms of the actual book itself um i began thinking about um the so-called abyssinia crisis which is really the central uh, example in the in the argument yeah i mean i think anyone who's done like a bit of history at school probably came across the this this crisis which is usually narrated as a kind of paradigmatic example of the failure of the League of Nations and the failure of it, the kind of immaturity of international law at that point, the beginning of appeasement and so on, because essentially uh, Mussolini's Italy invaded Ethiopia, the Ethiopian Empire, even though both of them were um, supposedly sovereign states and members of the League of Nations, and essentially nothing happened that the collective security mechanism that was supposed to kick in and that kind of situation didn't kick in the great powers essentially abandoned ethiopia or abyssinia as they continued to call it to its fate um and then you know the rest is history kind of thing so that's a story that gets told and retold and retold all the time and i always thought like it's funny that there seems to be seems to be so kind of simple. I'm sure I'm sure that it must have been a bit more complex, especially if you were Ethiopian. Um, and then I don't know. A lot a lot of things happened. I worked in Rome. I, I was well, you know I was a journalist for a bit, and then I ended up at SOAS. And while I was at SOAS, which is short, which is the acronym of uh, the School of Oriental and African Studies, it, part of the University of London. So this is a an amazing, wonderful, brilliant place where um, it used to be the place where they trained up the colonial administrators and the spies and so on. And you can learn like all kinds of, there's an amazing language center and stuff there. And and then, you know, over the years, it transformed into, many people will probably know, like a very, very important place for post-colonial theory and uh, in general, non-European thinking in, in the academy. And so while I was there, I began doing some international law and I heard about this course that was being taught called Colonialism, Empire and International Law. And essentially I managed to like convince them to let me squeeze in. And there I discovered this really, really important trend or I don't know, movement, I guess you could call it in international law, as well as discovering international law for the first time, which is which is called, uh, it's known as TWAIL, which stands for Third World Approaches to International Law. So this is like, we're talking here about the mid 2000s, which is just when some of the really important work was coming out by people like 
Anthony Angie, Vasukinesia, James Garthy, people like that, BS Chimney, and um, and basically what they what they are doing, and the the phrase third world approaches to international law is is a bit tongue tongue in cheek, um, as you know when you you meet them. But the 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 point is to kind of appropriate that term or reappropriate that term and point out how complicit international law has been always with the European colonial project. So whereas the idea of the right of peoples to self-determination, which animated decolonization, um, suggests that um, international law in the form of a right like that, very important right, is kind of the solution to colonialism. And, and it was, you know, the right to become a state that basically ended colonialism, solved the problem. Um, actually, what these guys... Uh, are saying is that no, 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 it's much more complicated than that. And they point out the many ways in which international law was bound up, not just with legitimating colonialism, but also uh, making, you know, kind of the dynamic, how Tony Hange's point is that you you can't have one without the other. Essentially, the two are mutually constituted. So that's essentially where I ended up um, uh, going into the the so-called Abyssinia crisis in, in more detail. But I, then I got stuck because I just felt like, you know, I'm, I'm a British person, for, you know, like I come from the centre of the centre and it just did not feel like my story to tell. So it took me a long time to work out what to do with that story after I finished my PhD. And so eventually I began to see a pattern. I began to see that what I noticed in relation to um, the way Ethiopia was treated or how it, its, its encounter with international law, that that actually happened uh, and was happening much more widely. And it was at that point that that I began to see that as a, a process, which I ended up calling the process of international legal reproduction, which is about how the process of how international law reproduces its subjects, which are primarily nation states and itself and the world. Mm-hmm. The book mobilizes fresh archival research and draws on unorthodox, or as you put it, renegade Marxist and anti-colonial scholarship to develop a modular legal history of sovereign equality and inequality. Would you elaborate on the novel methodological techniques that you foreground here? Sure. Um, so the um, so the idea of modular history um, actually it, that, that the point of that idea is to suggest that um, that uh, you can that is to suggest this idea of a pattern basically, which is a very kind of I think it's fair to say unfashionable way of thinking about uh, the past, right? So the, uh, the the kind of very 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 long historical view in which you can put events that seem really disparate from one another um, uh, together, like. In, in the book, for example, uh, I'm dealing with examples as disparate as um, the, the so-called unequal treaties that were concluded with the Chinese Empire in the in the 19th century, and then um, you know the, the responsibility to protect in in Libya in 2011, and then the Ethiopian Empire under the League, and then you know to put those kinds of things together is is methodologically usually 
I don't know, it's a bit unusual, basically. But the idea of modular history was supposed to, to, to get away from that uh, and to suggest that actually, if you, if you, if you kind of zoom out, um, then, then things become visible that you wouldn't otherwise see. Similarly, the idea of building the book as a shadow box. So, so one chapter is a kind of frame. Uh, uh, the book, the book is built not it's not written with chapters, but it's a frame that has like different items, historical items placed in it. And I had in my mind um, this the the work of various often surrealist um, uh, artists, uh, including Joseph Cornell, who's probably the most famous. Um, a shadow box essentially is it's a kind of um, plays with the idea of two and three dimensions. And if you imagine a kind of glass box with stuff in it, you'd be able to walk around that box and see things in relation to one another from, from whatever perspective you chose, although the, the, the maker of the box has kind of set it up in a particular way so that the light falls in, for example, in a particular way. And, you know, so there's a little bit of me trying to, you know, foreground certain things, but it's also an invitation for other people to sort of look into it and kind of squint a little bit and see see if they see what I see, which is a, a pattern that, that that kind of it's a little bit like a um, a little bit like a, a kaleidoscope or maybe a stick of rock or something like that. But you know, the, the invitation is basically for people to put their own items into the box and see see if that pattern sh- shows up to them as well. Um, but in order to sort of get to that point, I did draw on like especially a few Marxist materialist thinkers that I found super, super useful. One of them is Walter Benjamin, um, whose idea of um, like exploding linear history, the need to explode uh, this idea that one thing came after another and that's all there is to it. Um, uh, in order to, to make the past historical, I found that super powerful. So it always suggested to me this idea of literally dynamiting the progress narrative and then, but not just doing that, which I think you, I think all history in a way does that in, in a very brilliant way. Um, but also then to sort of step back and see where the shrapnel falls, right? To kind of stand back and see squint a little bit and just see where how the pieces relate to one another and that next step i think is the is the crucial thing that that sort of distinguishes um contextualist historiography and even the kind of Foucauldian genealogy which is a more radical version of that distinguishes uh, that from a more materialist and kind of openly revolutionary uh, uh approach of people like of benjamin and people who like him i'm actually right now Living in the a place called Pogba, which is where the where Benjamin died, um, and there's an amazing memorial on the on the mountain. Uh, so he's kind of around where I am all the time. Um, but uh, another person I found super useful, um, and I'll talk more about him maybe is a, is a guy called Mikhail Bakhtin, um, a, a, a kind of linguist. Um, so he he comes in and then uh, really importantly uh, in addition to the Twale scholarship I mentioned there's a really brilliant and healthy although possibly um, unexpected from the outside movement um, uh, in international or critical international legal thinkers of of Marxist thinking so we're obviously talking here about 
a huge body of Marxist or Mar- some people call it Marxian work. And um, there's a, a guy called Pashukhanis, who's like a very, very, very famous figure at Soviet, early, early Soviet era, um, Marxist theorist of, of law. Um, but then the, the person I really drew on was this guy called Edelman, who took that, t- took, um, um, took Pashukhanis, sort of mixed it together with Althusser's idea of interpolation and came up with this I for me, super central idea of um, uh, of the of of basically the production of desire. So the process of international legal reproduction that I describe in the book is a, definitely about coercion. It's a, it's about it's about how and why um, the world has been transformed from an incredibly, um, I mean, almost mind blowingly diverse kind of place in of of multiple, you know countless kinds of different ideas of community of different ontologies and epistemologies different normative frameworks and so on into this sort of monologic place of that's covered in these things called nation states that process is is an incredibly violent process and it continues to be but it's also a huge part of the story it's about the production of desire basically um so so though yeah that's the kind of people i was drawing on in addition to like all my colleagues uh many of them doing brilliant work on colonialism on on inequality gender there's an amazing kind of feminist and queer theory side to all of all of the critical work that's being done and i totally stand on their shoulders like i i have always felt quite um cringe about the idea of uh, publishing you know, just under my name because it has so many influences. But anyway, those are the those are the renegade Marxists for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Excellent. And how does the central analytical concept of international legal reproduction help us understand the disciplining dynamics of international law and the inconsistencies that are programmed into, let's say, the doctrine of sovereign equality? Right. Um, so that's a really good question. So essentially, um, the process of international legal reproduction, this idea of, a, a, of that essentially we should pay attention to the process through which new, uh, new subjects of international law, that is to say new nation states or uh, aspiring nation states um, or not quite nation states of various kinds, you know, there were many protectorates and, you know, so on. Um, how the, the process through attending to the process through which new subjects of international law are brought into being can tell us something um, that we wouldn't otherwise see about um, international law's implication in the kinds of problems that, you know, that uh, as critics, uh, you know, just normal people, we're worried about problems like inequality, problems like racism, problems like other forms of discrimination um, or, you know, the shorthand for that, that, as you mentioned, was, you know, inequalities of wealth, power and pleasure. So essentially the, the mainstream idea um, that you find, you know, if you read the, you know, uh, UN Charter or you listen to, you know, the legal advisor to whichever government talking about international law, that kind of mainstream narrative um, essentially uh, narrates the sovereign state as a kind of, you know, a kind of pinnacle of uh, 
you know, where we're getting to. And in fact, it's very easy to take the idea that the world is full of states and we all have a passport that says our state on it for granted um, as, you know, like the end point of human history, essentially. Um, and there's, of course, lots of liberal philosophy that backs that up as well. But the, the, the basic idea in this mainstream sense of international law is that all states are formally equal. That means they have the same rights and duties, even if in, ter- in terms of material stuff, they're very unequal. That's not really international law's problem. And there's this thing called the domestic analogy. So uh, individual states are supposed to kind of relate to each other a little bit like individual citizens in, in a, in, within a nation state. Um, and, you know, that's basically it. Internally, sovereignty is supposed to mean you can have any kind of government you want. Um, and that's repeated all the time. And uh, the right of peoples to self-determination, which I mentioned earlier, you know, really helps to kind of, or at least can be used to support this narrative because it, it seems kind of, you know, at least one sort of obvious reading of what happened during decolonization that presents itself as, long as if you don't dig too deeply into the, into the nuts and bolts of it, is that essentially um, former colonies... Uh, demanded and eventually got sovereign statehood themselves. So they, they shifted from being colonies to states and the problem was solved and it seems clear that they wanted it and so that's what everybody got and now everyone's happy kind of thing. Um, and if you meet the four criteria for statehood, these are defined territory, um, a fixed population, possession of some kind of government and independence, um, you know, that they're supposed to be kind of neutral criteria and that's the end of the story. As long as you can meet them, that's fine. Or if you have a right to self-determination, you can get them fine. So what um, critical thinking in international law has done is to, is to try and show why actually, far from being the solution to inequality, uh, actually the state, well, actually international law is part of the problem. And in my my book, we're talking here about the state in particular. So um, so what I'm arguing is that far from being analogous, uh, actually the relationship between the individual and the state is, is conditional, right? And what I mean by that is that, um, that essentially throughout history, if you look at the gazillions of, you know, treaties of recognition, treaties of friendship and commerce, uh, unequal treaties, uh, even mandates, um, special agreements, you know, all of these m- multiple, multiple documents that contribute to bringing new entities into being as international persons, you really find the same kind of thing happening. And essentially what happens is that sovereignty in an external sense, international rights and duties are conditioned on the reproduction domestically of a very specific kind of uh, institutional structure which essentially reproduces uh, the individual as a citizen with three rights. I mean, there's three basic rights mainly, um, life, liberty, and property, the three kind of, you know, most basic individual rights of all, uh, but not others. So essentially, to the extent that entities can show that they can protect individual rights where those exist, so the citizens in particular, if we're talking about the colonial period, citizens of uh, European states, of American states, once they come into existence, if they turn up in a non-European territory, can the you know local community 
enforce their rights to have private property, protect their rights to trade and move around freely? If so, then then they might be recognised as having some degree of external sovereignty. Um, and so basically, the protecting the it's a bit tricky, it's a bit kind of complex, but the pattern is really important. The, the, the protection of the individual rights of citizens who already have them, first of all. And then if you really, really want to be recognized as a state yourself, you need to extend that citizenship to all your all the people living in your territory, essentially. So what's interesting about that is that often when we look at these kinds of treaties, for example, with the Chinese Empire or the uh, capitulations with the Ottoman Empire, or we look at the mandates in under the League of Nations with the former Ottoman um, uh, overseas territories, or um, if we look at much more recently, like uh, the Dayton Accords with Bosnia or the 2003 Roadmap to Peace, often what people are looking for is, as critics, is um, the inequality that's built into them. Right, the ways in which these treaties actually created an unequal relationship between um, uh, 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 Western states, European states, and settler states on the one hand, and these non-European entities or Eastern European entities on the other. But what I want to stress, and what I think is really important, is how much they're all about equality. These treaties, even the earliest ones with the Ethiopian Empire, for example, um, in the early 19th century, recognised the Ethiopian Empire as a sovereign equal and, and, and constitute reciprocal rights for it, British people within Ethiopia and for Ethiopian people in Britain. Now, of course, it was very unlikely that Ethiopian traders were going to go to Britain and try to exercise those rights. So it's really all about the level playing field here. Essentially, the constitution of inequality uh, sorry, the constitution of equal rights in an incredibly unequal context. Um, and that's really the kind of, that's where, that's where you need Marxism basically to get into that. So, um, it's a, so there's a process of coercion that goes on here, but there's also a process of interpolation and that's and the production of, the desire, of desire. So um, to give another example, if you look at the treaties that were concluded with the Chinese empire, um, in the wake of the Opium Wars by the British, essentially those treaties provide for, they, they recognise the Chinese Empire as, uh, in all its majesty as a sovereign equal. There's no question uh, about that at all. There's a reciprocal relationship of two equal sovereigns. And then uh, those treaties also insist that individuals, individual British traders, missionaries and so on within China have a right to trade and move around freely. But of course, what good is that right unless it, it unless there's somebody to trade with, unless there's somebody to carry you around the country? So essentially, to cut a long story short, what ends up happening there and elsewhere is the production of a kind of desire. Essentially, this, the, the, the individuals within those states ha have to transform themselves um, and the more unequal the situation is, the more desperately that desire is, is, is felt, basically. And I can give some other examples. But that's the basic point. Um, and there's some other important things to say about um, things like slavery and the role of race in all of this that I can talk about as well. Um, it depends 
which way you'd like to go with it. I mean, the book's primary case study, and let's take it from there, concerns the Abyssinian crisis, as we've mentioned already. You forcefully argue that Ethiopia's less than fully sovereign status in the League, the League of Nations, was not an aberration of the doctrine of sovereign equality, but an integral part of international's law, international law's normal functioning. What can the Ethiopian historical experience and similar such instances of discursive and physical exclusion teach us about the ongoing battles over sovereignty, legal subjectivity, and good governance the world over? Well, that's a big question. I mean, there's a lot that <laughs> there's a lot that that can be said about that, um, about the kind of um, the recurring um, the recurring themes that come up again and again whenever um, not just when new uh, entities are trying to be recognized as sovereign equals. I mean, that happens less and less, and that's actually quite important. In a, in a world which is almost completely covered in, in nation states now. Um, you know, some of the most recent have also been some of the most uh, incredibly violent. We're thinking here about Kosovo, for instance, South Sudan. Um, there just isn't any, any territory left now. Um, and so uh, what that what that situation is telling us is not that the process of international legal reproduction is kind of over and something we don't need to look at anymore. What that process is telling us is that having been obtained conditionally, uh, sovereignty or international personality remains conditional. Um, and that means that um, there's a kind of discipline at work in the, in the function of, functioning of the international legal order that, that, that means that uh, international personality kind of waxes and wanes um, depending on the adherence of a of a particular entity to um, to the conditions of its constitution. So um, in the Ethiopian case, what happened was uh, a kind of crucial moment. Well, there were several, but one crucial moment came when in 1923 Ethiopia applied to become a member of the League. So um, of the League of Nations. So Ethiopia by that time was like one of only two uh, independent uh, entity states in, in, in the African continent, uh, one of which was Liberia, which has its own um, you know, very troubled history as a, essentially a, a black colony. Um, uh, so, I mean, there's a chunk about that on, in the book as well, and other people have written brilliantly on it. But um, that's a that's a whole other story, although related. So Ethiopia is is in a way the last kind of you could say autochthonous um, African polity at this point in 1923, and uh, is surrounded by British, French, and Italian colonies. And at this point, um, Rastafari Makonnen, who's later to become Haile Selassie, Haile Selassie. Um, decides he's kind of a modernizing guy and he manages to convince the Ethiopian nobility he's, he's the prince regent at this moment he manages to convince them that that the Ethiopia should apply for legal membership and the story of how he does that is quite interesting but essentially what happens is the league says mm, not sure about this Ethiopia because you still have slavery and 
uh, they attached conditions that there was a form of slavery still going in Ethiopia at this time, and they attached the abolition of slavery to uh, as a condition of league membership, essentially, which uh, involves, you know, by definition, the, recon- the recognition of all the members of the league, and crucially for Rastafari, the um, the the right of collective security. So if Ethiopia got attacked, particularly by Italy, had designs on it as it had done for many years, then the, the League members would be duty-bound under the terms of the Covenant of the League of Nations to come to Ethiopia's assistance. So um, it seemed like a win, essentially, for, um, for, to, for Rastafari, but in the end, the, the story, as we know, is that uh, when, it, when Italy did attack, uh, nothing happened. But before we get to that point, what's really interesting is that this this thing about the abolition of slavery. So the abolition of slavery looks like something kind of idiosyncratic, um, particular to Ethiopia at the time, uh, because slavery had, you know, abolition, the movement for abolition had been going for a really long time by that point, by 1923. And in fact, Ethiopia's situation sparked the process that ended up in the first anti-slavery um, treaty in 1926. So, but actually, and this was part of the process of me realizing that what was going on in Ethiopia actually happened elsewhere. What the abolition, if you look at the abolition movement in relation to the process of international legal reproduction more generally, what you see is that the abolition of slavery, as it's narrated by the people enacting it and theorizing it, is not so much about giving all human beings recognition as legal subjects, but more about creating a flaw under, underneath which, uh, a flaw that meant that no human being could become the property of another. And what in practice that involved is essentially ensuring that uh, um, all individuals would be forced into understanding their relationship to the world as one of uh, a, a rational, individual who would rationally take their own body essentially sell their own labor power in exchange for private property so if you and that's a story of what happened in the united states uh, a very vivid story about the emancipation of, uh, of of millions of people who were then left without any without anything essentially no land uh, no no resources and forced into this way into becoming a kind of a reservoir of uh, self-identifying um, uh, uh, laborers, as it were. So that's a really important part of the story of the spread of capitalism, basically. So that that allows us to see the conditions attached to Ethiopia's entry into the league, not so much as being about slavery as they were about uh, uh, um, about the other things that were going on at the time in the mandates. Um, and had been going on for hundreds of years, essentially, ensuring not just that the world would be opened up so that its resources could be used, but also so that it, so that its people would be transformed into a market for the supposed overproduction of, uh, that was going on in Europe. So um, to bring that up to the present, um, essentially those conditions were instrumentalized by Italy in the 30s, uh, but in order to say, look, Ethiopia didn't manage to to meet its conditions, and that means it's not a proper member of the league, and that means that our invasion is justified, and that was an argument 
that was actually accepted very quietly, even though supposedly uh, the, the, the standard account tells us otherwise, actually Ethiopia, uh, Ethiopia's annexation to Italy was, was widely recognized. Um, uh, so this, this legal argument made sense. Um, but, let, but if we bring it up to the present, what we find is that uh, entities that, that renege on their conditions of constitution, for example, entities that become, uh, that refuse to treat their populations as markets, uh, for example, by going communist or whatever it is, uh, they, they tend to have a, a weaker form of, um, uh, that their, their, their sovereign armor tends to be treated as weaker. So we can think about the history of, you know, Cold War interventionism there. Um, more recently, we can think about some of the more spectacular um, moments of so-called responsibility to protect. So what exactly is being protected there? Um, it's If you look at the small print, also the, the Arab Spring, you look at the small print of what's being promised and what's being asked in exchange when the international community comes onto the scene. And, and what's being asked is, is the re-establishment of so-called good governance, a term that goes back to the, to the league as well. Um, basically protections once again for foreign capital, um, for foreign property rights, and um, the dismantling of any other forms of individual rights that would have the effect of undercutting those through redistribution. And the same thing even now is going on with COVID. You know, even if you look at the kind of, um, the kind of things that are on, on the table on offer from the, the IMF um, in terms of support for non-European states uh, that are struggling with the effects of COVID, it turns out that the conditions invariably involve uh, dismantling precisely the uh, the non-existent health systems and so on that whose absence contributed to the crisis. So it doesn't really go away, sadly. You insist that sovereignty has always been contingent on a system of legal subjectivity involving rights and duties necessary for the operation and expansion of capitalism. In other words, to partake in the functioning of the world legal order, states have to be economized and serve as nodes in the planetary machinery of capitalist production. Would you illuminate this captivating argument by offering some additional examples from the text? Sure. So there are, there are, there are lots and lots of different examples in the text, which I, I've tried to span as widely as possible. So, um, but, you know, obviously there wasn't time to go there wasn't space to go into all of them, but but some of the most interesting, I think, come from the the, the moment of the end of the First World War, which I have mentioned before. Um, so, but th- this moment is, is is it's so interesting when you go into the League of Nations archives in Geneva, for example, a very lovely experience, um, or you know, even if you just read, you can a lot of these publications were were being published at the time, there was a real sense of like the international being created as a thing uh, and new. There was a really kind of eschatological sense uh, of, of those kind of negotiating at Versailles that they, that they were kind of um, defeating once and for all a particular kind of illegitimate form of government uh, that which they understood as 
autocratic or tyrannical. That's how this, the central powers, the losing powers, um, uh, you know, Germany, the Ottoman Empire, Bulgaria, Austria, Hungary, how, how they were characterized, basically. Um, and also, uh, which is which is often sort of left out of the story or treated completely separately, the unfolding Russian civil war that was that was going on as the Versailles Treaty was being negotiated. So uh, Russia basically went from being an ally to being a kind of different sort of um, a different sort of enemy state. Uh, you know, in a matter of months, essentially after the the revolution of 1917 and then the conclusion of the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. So at the end of the First World War, not only were uh, people negotiating in Versailles, but at the same time, there were thousands of troops on the ground in the Russian Empire trying to defeat the, on the side of the the White Army, trying to defeat the Red Army. So that context, joining that context up, I think is really, really crucial. And this one thing that is really well known about this moment is that it was a really massive moment of experimentation. Um, and strangely enough, like many people have described the League of Nations. So, for example, Susan Pedersen is one who's described the League of Nations as a kind of experiment, a, 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 um, a, a group of sovereign states basically trying to create only sovereign states, but actually it was an incredibly diverse institution and article... Um, Article 1 of the League of Nations Covenant tells you, gives you a clue to that straight away by saying that membership is open to any self-governing uh, state, dominion or colony um, that accepts the, you know, the terms of the League. So, and it just kind of, that, that idea, how could, that, how could a, a colony be self-governing, uh, uh, a, a dominion, how could a dominion be self-governing? That, that kind of gives you a clue to this, the way in which things were being thought about at this moment and indeed before and after. So, so I think um, in addition to looking at the mandates, which we've already talked about, the non-European territories that the, the, the League of Nations set about trying to transform into a, a self-governing state, uh, one that would be open, uh, the one in which the rights of uh individual citizens to own property, to travel and so on, essentially to expand the terrain of capitalism would be reproduced. A really, really similar thing was going on uh, in the so-called minorities treaties, which actually were the treaties um, which were used to bring into being the new nation states in Eastern Europe, like Poland, although it had existed before, Romania, uh, where else? Um, what later became Yugoslavia and so on. Um, so on the one hand, the so-called minorities treaties, uh, um, which which uh, essentially forced these new states to protect their minorities, but actually did much more than that. And on the other hand, the treaties that were constituted with the enemy states, not only the infamous Treaty of Versailles with Germany, but also uh, the one with Bulgaria, the one with Austria, the one with Hungary, uh, and so on. If you put them all together, I'm a, I have such a kind of um, fetish for for these kinds of treaties. I have this huge archive of treaties, and I I read them a lot. But if you if you really scrutinise them, it's so interesting how similar they all are, right? And how similar they are with the Treaty of Nanking, and how similar they also are with um, you know uh, 
the day tentacles, right? And they, in, 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 um, in basically uh, punishing and setting to right affairs with the enemy states and in bringing into being these new so-called national states, largely on the territory, having taken away that the territory has stripped it from the enemy states to create these new states, um, they, uh, these treaties ensure that the new states would bring into being, guess what, a particular kind of constitution. And that particular kind of constitution would um, ensure open door access to um, to uh, the citizens of states of, or other members of the League of Nations and would reconstitute uh, internally the relationship between state and individual such that all of these individuals would be free and equal, uh, um, self-determining, uh, uh, property-owning individuals along the manner of the self-governing state. So essentially, during the, the moment of the League of Nations, there was this massive expansion, a kind of legitimation and institutionalization of the process of international legal reproduction, which makes the what was going on with the enemy states and the national states and the dominions and the mandates and the, the colonies of the of the victorious powers. It's all kind of part of the same process. And I think that's really important. And it's, it's not about... Um, necessarily creating sovereign states it's about creating self-governing entities whether those entities are colonies mandates or whatever yeah so i think that of all, of all the moments where you could look for examples that's probably the most exciting but that pattern repeats and repeats and repeats and, and i think can explain an, an awful lot about what's going on today with Israel and Palestine, if you know that background, what's going on today with Iraq and what happened in 2003. Uh, we've just had the 20th anniversary, which is nuts. You know, all of these, all of these more recent stories have their roots in this process, um, sometimes longer roots, yeah. You move away from the so-called doctrinal approach to the history of international law wishing to show that such legal doctrines as sovereign equality have themselves been utilized as tools of exclusion and violence. So if international law truly is structurally hybrid, as you put it, so utopian and apologistic, then what are its normative and institutional segments that could buttress resistance against what you call progressive historical unfolding of legal subjectivity? Right. I mean, I, I think... So, I mean, there's, there's two parts to, to answering that. One is that looking at the world th through the lens of international law is really helpful to understand what's going on. So, in a way, um, the, the trick is not to drink the Kool-Aid, right? <laughs> the, thing, the trick is to understand how international law works and then, then thinking critically about it. So, what I mean by that is, uh, and I say this as someone who's kind of like a... A, a bit of a um, refugee from political science, right? That I came to international law kind of late on, and it, it really blew my mind because it it because unlike well, I think that you can safely say this about many disciplines actually, and not just it's not fair to single out political science because lots of brilliant work is being done there, like everywhere else. But you can sort of say anything you like, right, about anything, and that's fine. But with international law, if you want to talk about the 
the global, you really do see how particular kinds of words get to have a particular kind of resonance, how, how they get concretized into things that you can bump up against. But what I mean is, that, you know, if you, you, it hurts if you bump up against the law, right? Because we're talking here about uh, words that are backed up with coercive force. So um, for those who don't know, the way international law works is that states, only states can make law, and they do that by concluding treaties, most obviously, but they also do that by doing things and by saying things. So the words of states or their representatives and the actions of states um, turn into, uh, into hard law, essentially. Um, the, what, there's treaty law, and then the other one is called custom, basically, uh, a, co a combination of state practice and what's called opinion juris, the stuff that states say. So, and I found it, I remember being in some of my first lectures and finding it very, very strange the way the question would be asked, like, what is the custom here? Um, let's have a look at the state practice and the uh, opinion juris and the treaties and see if we can find out what the custom is, what the norm of international law is, as though the norm of international law kind of existed out there and all you needed to do was sort of like dust, pu push away the clouds or the dust or something and you'd eventually find it. But that is actually how it works. Um, and it, it's easy to dismiss international law if you just think about things like the prohibition on the use of force, which obviously doesn't function very well. But actually, international law organizes a huge amount of what happens in the world. If you think about um, especially the economic side of things, the environmental side of things, or rather the lack of it, um, uh, the, the, the hardness of uh, visa regulations, um, if if you're a refugee, the, the difficulty of trying to get from one place to another, um, the, the way bilateral investment uh, treaties function, there's a, it, it's much, much, it, it would be a huge mistake to dismiss international law as something that doesn't really exist, just because um, there's still war, as it were. So basically, this thing about seeing, it gives you really something to hang on to, right, when you see that what states do and what states say about what they do turns into um, turns into norms backed up by the use of force, the legitimate use of force. Um, and once you start to see the world in the way, the, uh, you, you can sort of say something much, much more powerful about it. But then um, that you also start to see how that has a kind of self-legitimating function, right? So oh, I've described it somewhere else as a kind of inbuilt historiography, right? So which, which is self-legitimizing, because it means that the things that are said and done by entities that are not states, individuals, other kinds of community, uh, non-human animals, that they're, they're just invisible or inaudible from the perspective of, of international law. And us crits have always, all of us many times have our, had our articles rejected from peer-reviewed peer journals by people saying things like, oh, that's very interesting, but that's not really law. You know, it happens on a kind of personal level as well. Um, and so so all of the the kind of people, the movements I've described, TWAIL, critical legal studies, queer, you know, queer international legal theorists, Marxist, feminists, and so on, that they're all trying, that, that in one way or another, is trying to get this point across that, um, trying to respond to that kind of self-legitimizing thing. Of, uh, of trying to 
uh, trying to get past basically that 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 thing that that renders kind of completely invisible every possible form of critique. So that that's one way in which international law can help us understand what's going on. Uh, does that answer your question? I think there was another half of it which I have forgotten now. And the the other half would be, um, you know the thing about normative and institutional aspects of international law that can actually help resistance against legal subjectivity and and, and the unfolding of legal subjectivity as you've described it. Yes, that crucial, absolutely crucial part of the question. So so one of the things that... um, one of the things that I really do want to emphasize is where does resist, this question of where does resistance come from? And so, uh, um, so this idea of international legal reproduction can come across as uh, a bit too much, as it were. Um, it's, it can come across as something very determinist, basically. So we're all, the states are all over the world now. In, they're inherently programmed to re- reproduce capital. We, as just by simply existing in those states, just by going about our business as people who have jobs and buy things in shops and stuff like that, um, and hold passports or don't hold passports, simply just by existing in this world, we are interpolating as the subjects of capital. Basically, that that's the basic argument, and I uh, uh, and it does sound a bit determinist, and I want to stress that it that 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 um, this idea that of hybridity, that international personalities are basically transform, forced to transform from self into other uh, with a similar effect on the individuals within them, it, it can never be complete by definition. And this has been the insight by post-colonial theorists for many, many years whose work I'm totally drawing on. So um, that hybridity, that the impossibility of transforming from other into self completely is, I think, really, really, really crucial. So we can see the pattern all over the world, but we can also see that that pattern is not, you know, it's not monologic. Um, and so, for example, um, as a, uh, let me think. So Ethiopia is, a, is another very good example, but I could give others. Ethiopia, you know, interpolated as a nation state, was brought into, into the League of Nations um, demanded, there's a, you can still see the video, in fact, of uh, the, the film of Haile Selassie appealing before the League of Nations in 1936 for, for, for the collective security promise to be, um, to be adhered to. Um, it's actually kind of a very moving thing to watch. I recommend everyone should see it if they haven't. Um, you know, that it, it, Ethiopia interpolated as an upstanding member of the international community, but it, it never, it, it also never managed to shake off its otherness. And I think that that's an insight we could apply all over the world. But what does one do with that? So that's where um, I think I mentioned uh, Mikhail Bakhtin, another Soviet era, uh, in this case, a linguist. Um, and I found his work really, really useful here. So he, um, he talks he describes, he's actually describing the novel, but he describes a process of hybridization um, in which um, you can see two different kinds of discourse, as he would call it, although it's in translation, um, two different ways of understanding spliced together in a way that is kind of strategic. So, um, so 
I think that this kind of gets tied in with other kinds of more recent um, uh, post-colonial and other theory that that that, um, that that discusses the hybridity of the post-colonial subject, or you could, in my reading, you could really say almost any subject uh, of the any subject of domestic law, any citizen, uh, as simultaneously interpolating and then also retaining their 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 just selfhood, their fact of their individuality, and uh, for example, Homi Baba has talked about uh, this idea of the mimic man. Um, you could also see similar kinds of arguments at work in Franz Fanon, for instance, where the otherness, although it's um, it simultaneously creates the conditions for oppression, also offers a potential way of resisting. Right. So, in in Homi Baba's work, the mimic man is is kind of that what he calls a mimic man is a sort of threatening other, like the very similarities of the colonial subject are precisely what make that subjectivity a threat to to the power that has subjected it. So the way I trace that in the book into a kind of more concrete forms of resistance is is through looking in particular at the, uh, uh, the the amazing work that's being done uh, coming from indigenous scholars and the resistance that's being mounted by indigenous peoples all over the world from the very beginning uh, of the whole story of statehood to the to the idea that everybody has to uh, has to um, knuckle down essentially to this totally universalist paradigm and if there, if there's i mean there are there's a huge amount of brilliant work being done all over the place but if, if there really is a cutting edge to this kind of scholarship on resistance uh, and other ways of thinking that are not necessarily uh, or even at all capitulating to this universal idea of the free and equal individual and the universal idea of the sovereign state it's it's in this work by you know coming out of what is now Canada what is now Australia people like Glenn Coulthard, Jeff Hewitt, Audrey, Audrey Simpson, uh, um, I'm talking about the wrong person, and also Christine Black. And anyway, there's many, many that I could mention. There's just, it's just brilliant. And so I, I hesitate to talk more about it because of like, because it's not for me to say basically, but that really is, I think, where you can find that a really, really, really interesting way of talking about what it is to exist in this world and yet to reject it, to exist in it, and yet at the same time to to describe one's freedom and one's what you could call self-determination on, on one's own terms and how to do that, how to kind of stay with the trouble, to put it in a Donna Haraway kind of sense. Um, yeah, I think that uh, that's that's where to look. Finally, where has this project taken you? What are you currently working on? Hmm. Um, so, so I am I am working more in the in the method side of things at the moment. So I mentioned at the beginning that I, I, I have this wider project on on fascism. Um, especially in a historical sense to do with Italian fascism. Um, but more and more that project has led me um, into thinking about, for example, the work of 
the futurists and into the relationship between um, the material and the ideological and so on. And I I also found the process of writing the book, um, you know, I, I, I increasingly began to, I was struggling throughout basically with the problem of linearity, right? A book by definition has to have some linearity to it. Of course it does. That's, that's the way it's structured and, and there's sort of no getting away from it. But I think, I think I'm increasingly interested in trying to work out if there are other, if, if given how bound up text is, uh, and certainly legal texts are with the, the kinds of problems that uh, we've been talking about here, that whether getting, trying to get away from the narrative altogether and, um, and do research and, uh, uh, and talk about research in using different means other than words and other than text might give a kind of more effective political foothold on what I'm trying to say. So I spent a, a good chunk of the end of last year, for example, training in, um, in stop motion animation. Uh, and so, uh, and I also, I don't know, I'm doing lots of image stuff more and more and more but so I'm I, I'm I'm kind of retraining myself partly uh, but with a view to sort of continuing to think about these things but in a different way and I'm also um, the other thing I'm really excited about is uh, I'm trying to set up well I'm in the process of teaching myself also uh, web design because I'm setting up a zine so I think a thousand years ago in another life I used to be a journalist I was a music journalist actually and I still you know I still have that thing in me so what I would really like to do with this scene is to essentially create a platform for the kind of work that is that is uh, sort of um, sort of in the in in the liminal bit in between art and academia actually not sure why there is really a division between those two because we're all really doing um, a very similar kind of thinking often just with different media. So it's, it's essentially going to be a platform for kind of work that foregrounds or is uh, trying to get away from just text. That doesn't mean there's going to be no words to it at all, but just like trying to do things methodologically in a bit more of a radical way than what we normally mean when we talk about interdisciplinarity. Yeah. Intriguing. Cannot wait to see what comes out of your workshop. Uh, Dr. Parfit, it has been a pleasure hosting you. Thank you for coming on to talk to us about your riveting scholarship. Thank you so much again. It was it was a great pleasure to be here. And I hope that uh, I hope that it will lead to more things. <laughs> <laughs>